Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Roofstock, the leading online marketplace for buying and selling leased single-family homes. Are you interested in adding rental real estate to your portfolio? A recent white paper called The Rate of Return on Everything examined global asset class returns all the way back to 1870 and concluded that residential real estate, not equity, has been the best long-run investment over the course of modern history. Roofstock offers quality pre-screen, single-family rental homes located in some of the best real estate markets in the country, with quality tenants already in place paying rent. And now, you can find all of this without ever leaving your own home. Roofstock is making what used to be an incredibly long and difficult researching and buying process fast and simple. That's because they do lots of the work for you by vetting properties, tenants, and property management companies so you can have all the info you need to find the right investment for you. Generating great income from rental properties has never been simpler. To learn more, visit roofstock.com forward slash meb. Again, that's roofstock.com forward slash meb. And now, on to the show. Hey, podcast listeners, it's officially fall time. Broncos are 2-0, and hopefully 3-0 and by the time you listen to this. And today, we have a couple great guests on the podcast. This is going to be a fun one for all those that are interested in all things investing and planning. All the way from Virginia, we have Jeff Porter and Barbara Shellhorn. Welcome to the show. Hey, Meb. Thanks hey. Uh, for having us on. I know we've been trying to get this booked for a little bit. Glad the calendar's linked up and we could nail this down. Look forward to the conversation. Yeah. So for a quick background, Jeff and I actually went to university together in Virginia and their company, Sullivan, Bruette, Sparrows, and Blaney, we'll call it SBSB, is a traditional wealth management shop on the East Coast, manages over $3 billion. And one of the reasons I wanted to have y'all on the podcast today is if certainly if there was someone, if I needed financial planning, now that I have an infant, I probably will. You know, it's not something I'd want to do on my own. And a, and a compliment to give you, Jeff, is is that if I were to have someone do it, you would probably be my first call. So today, I thought it'd be really fun to get deep and uh, talk a lot about the intricacies of planning and, and and wealth management, estate planning, all that good stuff. So to get started, why don't why don't you tell us a little bit about company? how you got there, your origin story, how you linked up with Barbara, and we'll go from there. So you could probably say kind of the journey for me started back in Econ 101 class at UVA. Meb, as you know, I was pretty psycho about getting good grades in high school and college. So that was all, always the end game for me. But Econ 101 really changed things for me. That was the first class where I actually just absolutely loved the content. And I was actually learning for the sake of learning. And that was strange for me back then. So that kind of pushed me on a path to the business school at UVA. And, you know, what a great time to be studying finance. That's what I did, learning about business markets, and especially behavioral finance, because as you remember, that was the peak of the tech bubble. 
So it was great to get all that you know, book knowledge uh, along with cutting my teeth and my own investments and managing family money and, and such. <laughs> Jeff, I, I remember back in college, you know, I, I was so I was a listeners, I was an engineering biotech guy, but I, I dabbled in investing in finance and took a couple courses. But I mean, this is back in the day where teachers would literally be like stopping or leaving class to go check on stock quotes. Yeah, I, mean, I went on so-called bathroom breaks all the times. And I, I go to computer lab, I bring up the stocks, and I'd be up like hundreds or you know, a thousand bucks you know, during the class. And for, you know, back then, that was huge. That's what paid for our happy hours. And so Burton, <laughs> Burton wouldn't have been the professor at Econ 101, would he have been? He was, we have a couple of pretty famous professors at Virginia, and we'll link to some of their, their homepages. Exactly. There's, there's a bunch of famous ones. I ended up in my major kind of by the other route, which was taking a bunch of courses that I hated. And that kind of drove me away, <laughs> guided me the other way than, rather than finding certainly what I loved. All right. So Virginia, keep going. Yeah. I mean, I was there and loving the material and loving investing and personal finance, but I didn't even think about going into that for my profession because that's what people didn't do that at the business school. They either went investment banking, they went big accounting, or they went big consulting. So I went the consulting route and went to Arthur Anderson for about two years until a little thing called Enron popped up. And that's when I started to explore kind of personal finance and consulting on, on that side of the business. But you know what? I didn't know what to do because I didn't want to go to New York. I didn't want to go to San Francisco. I wanted to stay in Washington, D.C. And I didn't know how to break into the business other than being a broker. And I knew way back in the, you know, the back of my head that I would not like the sales aspect of being a broker. But I convinced myself if I didn't join a big wirehouse and instead joined a, a private brokerage firm in D.C. where the culture was a little bit more tame on that front, that I'd be okay. So I was, quote, building my book of business as, as a broker for about two years. And I, I didn't do bad. I, mean, I didn't do great. did pretty well. But it certainly confirmed that I did not like that side of the business. I did not like the sales aspect. I didn't like consulting clients when I didn't essentially know my trade, know my craft. And I didn't like other people kind of rising up, not based off of their competency, but based off of how much business they brought in. So I started to enact plan B pretty quickly. I got the CFA books and passed the level one. And at the same time was looking around for other opportunities. And I remember staying late at the office one night and I picked up a Worth magazine article or, or magazine, I think it was 2003, 2004 timeframe. And it was a bright gold cover. And it said the 100 most exclusive wealth advisors in the country. So I flipped to the list and it was broken up by state. And I, you know, I live in Virginia. So I flipped to Virginia. And I, I want to say there's probably about seven or eight advisors from Virginia that made the list. And about five of them was from Sullivan Bruett. Spiros and Blaney, SBSB. And it was right in McLean, which I had grown up and you know, spent my whole life there. I had never heard of them, probably because it sounds like a law firm, but I was certainly intrigued. So I got in there for an interview because it just so happened there was an associate position opening up. And that's where I learned about you know, the other side of personal financial advice, being a registered investment advisor, the fiduciary status that comes with being an RIA, yeah, and also the dedication not only to investing, but the dedication to comprehensive deep dive financial planning, tax strategy, you know, and certainly compliance there, as well as you know, the process 
and all the uh, ins and outs of working with investment committees with respect to foundations, endowments, and the like. And I really you know, liked what I was hearing during the interview. I remember Jim Bruette was on the other side of the table, and he said, Jeff, you've been used to being a point guard on a high school basketball team. And how do you feel about being a towel boy on an NBA team? And I said, I'm cool with that. I'm okay with being a, a towel boy just as long as one day I can be a, a point guard on that NBA team. So uh, he must have liked it because he hired me as uh, an associate on a planning team. They told me to stop the CFA and get the CFP. So I got that and then went back to get the CFA. And then I just kind of went up the ladder on the planning side to senior associate manager, senior manager, director, senior director. And when I hit manager, I was invited on to be a participant in the investment policy committee which sets investment strategy for the entire firm and and all the clients. And I became a voting member. And about a year and a half ago, I was offered the chief investment officer role. And it was a tough decision because I needed to decide whether I was going to focus on planning while also doing portfolio management or focus on portfolio management while, while also doing some planning. And over the past 14 years here, I've realized how powerful financial planning is, but what was really getting me up in the morning still was investing. So I decided to take the CIO role, and now I'm just relying more on my teammates for financial planning. And you know, it's so important to be on a team, and when we decided to make this podcast some about portfolio, but a lot about planning, uh, that's why I asked for Barbara to come aboard, because she's known around the halls as one of the best planners here, uh, not only here, but on the probably the East Coast or even, even the nation. So I'm glad you you had her aboard as well. Great. Well, there was so much in there that I, I wanted to interrupt you, but you were on a roll. I mean, it's it's actually, you know, you kind of think about it, it's it's a fairly traditional route as far as once you're at the the investment advisor and, and it sounds like you guys have a lot of different positions and rungs on the ladder. But you know, it's funny when you mentioned talking about working at the broker in the early days, I mean the we've seen a lot of changes in the fiduciary rule and everything that's going on now. And one of the biggest challenges of working with a company that's not a fiduciary, and I used to love hearing some of the companies describe their revenue as, as production. And that, that phrase has always just kind of made my stomach churn a little bit. Anyway, okay. So let's talk a little bit about your firm. And I think a great starting point will be and jumping off point is, is the world's probably changed a lot in the last 14 years, you know, that you've been working and particularly at SBSB, where you a lot of talk in the media of obviously robo advisors and kind of the, the separation of both portfolio management and what that means as an investment management company, as well as the financial planning side. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about how your company is structured as far as advisors, how they add value. Is it what? What's kind of the model there? And I'll I'll let you guys just kind of run with it, and we'll we'll go from there. Yeah, and feel free to you know interrupt at any time. I'll just continue continue on. But you ask a great question, right? It's about you know, hey, robo advisors out there, and you know Vanguard has taken over the world with uh, the indexers, and there's target date and lifestyle type of funds in retirement accounts, and you know are those that enough for people? And I think those products and services are fantastic. And I think they are going to serve a heck of a lot of people. I just think there's a heck of a lot of people where it's just not a good fit 
for example, I think you need to check a number of boxes for it to be a good fit. One, you know, you can't have too complex of a situation or have a lot of financial planning questions uh, for it to be good fit. But if you're young, not complex, you're just trying to stash away the money that you can save for a long period of time, you know, that might make sense. If you have behavioral discipline, that's probably a must as well. As you know, at these various services and products, you can dial up the risk. And, that, and when you, because you can dial up in the risk, you can do it at the wrong time. And not only that, you can jump from strategy to strategy, meaning you know, the Vanguard robo-advising product is all indexing, right? But the Betterment product has a significant value tilt. They also have a huge international slug in their portfolio. And then you got the Schwab Intelligent portfolios that's probably more diversified. They have a ton of cash. I know you've talked about that and quite a bit in history here, in uh, the recent history. But they also have commodities. They have real estate. And they're not just indexers. They're fundamental indexers. So as this menu continues to broaden out, it's just going to offer data of all these underperforming or outperforming. And that will lead to most likely behavioral responses of chasing performance, just like people chase performance in mutual funds and stocks. So you got to have be, uh, behavioral discipline. And then, you know, important to have some background on investing. You're not going to trust a lot of your money, uh, at least certainly not your entire nest egg to someone you don't know or, or a robot. And you, you know, anytime you're doing it yourself, you got to have the time. You got to have the time and you got to have the desire. But if you can check all those boxes, I think, again, those services uh, or products make sense. But for those that can't, then there's the advisor route. And I think advisors can offer a heck of a lot of value, a lot of value on the financial planning side, which you know, we can get to. But even on the portfolio management side, we can add a lot of value. So let's, you know, let's take an example. Whenever you're starting to invest, you know, one of the first questions is you know, what's your allocation? Identifying the strategy. And there's two parts of that. You know, one is the risk assets and low risk assets, how much is in each bucket, stocks and bonds, et cetera. And the other part of it is how are you going to implement that allocation? Are you going to be just in stocks and bonds? Are you going to be in commodities and REITs? Are you going to have other strategies such as hedge strategies? For your allocation monitoring, are you going to be strategic in nature or are you going to have any tactical shifts? Are you going to be passive? Are you going to be active? Are you going to use factor tilts? So as you know, there's not one way to manage money. And it's most important just to identify the strategy that you can adhere to that suits your plan best. And it needs to go so much beyond, so much more beyond just a risk tolerance questionnaire and what's your time horizon. I think one of the best examples was for that we give is all these risk questionnaires, they'll spit out a portfolio. But in so many cases, they're age-based, as an example. And so many young people that I know and talk with all the time can't take hardly any volatility and kind of risk in their portfolios. They're just not set up that way. And these questionnaires will almost automatically guide them to, you know, 100% stocks because, hey, you got a 50-year time horizon. And then vice versa, there may be an older person says, look, I'm not doing this to generate income. I want to leave this to my, to my heirs or to, to this foundation. And so I want a very aggressive portfolio. And so a lot of the questionnaires, I think it's a really tough way to quantify it, you know, which, which you kind of talked about. Anyway, so I don't think they're to the point yet where they really drill down on a person. And the, one of the biggest challenges too, 
that I'm sure you're familiar with is a lot of people don't know the answer, you know, especially younger people that haven't been through, say, a bear market. And it'll be really fun to see these, you know, a lot of these robo technologies, if and when we ever have another bear market again, you know, they don't know the answer until they until they've been through it. So essentially, you got to you got to drill down to get to an answer. And an example of kind of how an advisor or how we might do that is first concentrating on you know what you need you know, what your returns need to be to satisfy your goals. Do they need to be 9 or 10%? Do they need to be 7 or 8%? Do they need to be 3 or 4%? So it's important to go through kind of a, a robust analysis of, you know, what you need. About three or four weeks ago or so, we had a client in, and they're really nervous, really nervous about their financial situation, really nervous about the markets. And they shouldn't have been because their balance sheet was great as a lot of nervous people are, you know, they don't spend a lot. So we knew that their plan was going to be fine, but we needed to go through the process to convince them. And when we were able to show them that they could meet all their goals while being a conservative investor, it's amazing the stress that kind of dripped off of them and that their, their shoulders fell. They were elated because, you know, this was a weight off their shoulders. They didn't need to play the, the game and go through the, the roller coaster to, you know, satisfy, you know, what they wanted to do. So for them, that was a real important part of getting to the answer of how they manage their money. So that's the first thing, right? It's, it's how much you need. The other thing we like to really drill down on is your ability to take on risk. And this goes beyond what's your income? Is your income stable or, or not? Is it tied to the business cycle in any way or, or markets? It's really about the withdrawals. When are you going to need the withdrawals? How much are you going to need? And especially if you get in that period leading up to retirement, as an example, and early in that retirement, call it five to 10 years up to and five to 10 years into it, because that's where sequence of return risk kind of comes into play. And there's been a lot of good stuff written about sequence of return risk over the past couple of years. Basically, that's being unlucky. It's when your portfolio gets hit in this time period, when you're getting ready to or withdrawing, and thus you're pulling out money at the wrong time, and that reduces the principal. So when the market does bounce back, you just don't get the lift and the longevity really is hurt. So an example that I kind of give clients that I think resonates is, let's take an example of someone who retires uh, with a $1 million portfolio, and they have a 5% withdrawal rate, so $50,000 a year. They're in a 50% stock, 50% cash bond portfolio, and this retiree retires in 1978. So despite these $50,000 distributions, that million dollars would have grown past $6 million a couple years ago, and now it's moving on to around $7 million. So this is what so many people want you know, that we run into. They want to satisfy their own lives and their own goals while they're here on this earth, but they also have charitable intentions or they want to leave a specific amount to their heirs. So that's perfect. But then you take this exact same retiree, but don't retire them in 19, 1978. Let's retire them in 1973. That million dollars is nowhere close to the six or seven million dollars. That million dollars ran out in the mid to late 90s. And that's because, you know, as you know from, from history, markets were not good, 73, 74, 75 time period, and that really hurt this retiree. So it, what it goes back you know, to the planning route and then the portfolio is that we need to 
forecast out detailed cash flows for every single year. And we need to prepare for those cash flows. And a good kind of rule of thumb that we use and a starting point in the conversation is if you need whatever you need over the next eight years, that probably shouldn't be in stocks. And the reason why we you know, chose eight years ago, you know, back when we started thinking about this in the late 90s, was that you look at the average bear market, it takes about six years to go down and then come back up and break even. So you never want to be selling stocks in that time period. You want to be selling bonds or other low-risk assets that are likely going up. But you also want to have the flexibility to rebalance in that time period because research shows that if you can sell bonds and, and buy stocks, that really helps with the longevity and it helps with the amount that you can withdraw for retirement. So that's a kind of a long way of describing how you dig in and the ability to take on risk. So you got how much you earn or how much you need. Uh, you got how much, uh, what your ability to take on risk. So now that's, let's look at the risk tolerance. And Neb, you, you just mentioned the difficulty with risk tolerance questionnaires. So I don't even give clients risk tolerance questionnaires. I give them one question and I found it to be useful. I basically ask clients and separately for each spouse, what's the percentage or more importantly, the dollar value temporary loss that you could withstand, be willing to accept in an average bear market that usually comes, comes around you know, every five years or so. When you look uh, post-World War II data, you look back further, it's pretty much every three to five years. So for example, you know, a client who has a $3 million portfolio, we'd list out some numbers. You know, 5% loss is $150,000 loss, then $300,000 loss, $450,000, $600,000, $750,000, etc., to see where their pain point is. So about five, six, seven months ago or something like that, we had a client in the office and had a $3 million portfolio. And we slid this question across the table to the husband and the wife. And we said, circle the answer that gives you the most discomfort. And the husband, which I knew was pretty risk tolerant through his businesses and his investments, he slid back $900,000. He said, anything over 900000 even I would, I would get a little jumpy. So that kind of translates into roughly an 80, 90% stock portfolio. The wife slid back the questionnaire, and it circled the lowest number, $150,000. And she said, I wish there was a lower number than $150,000. So that translates into like a 10% stock portfolio. You should have given this questionnaire, like this should be required pre-marriage. It's like, hey, you were engaged. We need to talk about finances because this might be oh, an issue. Don't even start. Don't even start with me, Matt. I, I'm not even going to comment because my wife might listen to this later. Um, but what great conversations we had after, you know, just talking about this and then kind of blending in the ability to take on risk and the, their plan and what they needed to return. And we got to a great, you know, answer that they were comfortable with. And it's not just the data that we're pulling out, you know, in this instance, it's the journey that we're taking with the client. A couple years ago, there was a study that was done and I don't know who it was done by, but the question in the study was, if you are looking for an advisor, what do you want most from them? And it stuck out of my mind because it was four C's. They said, character, competency, caring, and connectivity. So Meb, what do you think 
is the most important one even in that list. Again, character, competency, caring, and connectivity. What do you think is the most important? I'm going to say it's one of the last two. It's, it's, I feel like it's probably... I want to say it's, well, connectivity, meaning like, does he call me and reach out to me? Connection? I would Uh, say it's... Connection. Oh, what does that mean? Yeah, connection with your your advisor. Uh, An emotional connection, a trusting connection. Are you like my advisor soulmate? I think it's, I'm going to guess caring. Okay, well, you're wrong. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Okay, Uh, it's connection. Okay, well, that was my first guess, but then you kind of requalified it, and I wasn't really sure what it meant, because I've seen a lot of these same studies, it's framed a little different, where it's like, what's the number one reason individuals fire advisors, and it's almost always, he never calls me, he never emails me, like, I never hear from him, he doesn't care. So it's kind of in the same ballpark, but keep going. Yeah, you you got to the final two. It's almost never investment returns, by the way. All right, keep going. Yeah, oh, never, never. Never. But it is the connection. And you establish that connection mostly on the financial planning side and drilling down to not only you know, their goals, but their issues as well and family issues and special needs and that type of thing. But even on the portfolio side, you know, we just went through a process. And on the portfolio side, that's another way to establish that connection. So when you establish that connection, you gain trust. And when they trust you, then they're going to listen to you when bullets are flying by your head, you know, in bear markets and you need to behaviorally coach at that time. So that is just a very long-winded example of how an advisor might get to a solution of how you might want to start off investing from an allocation standpoint versus another one. Two follow-ups real quick. And it seems to me from a behavioral standpoint that not just from the client side, what we just talked about, where they care most about kind of the, the connection and, and, and the advisor caring about them and much less about the investment return. I wonder if that leads to like kind of universally thinking that in general, for behavioral reasons too, that you should almost always lean towards slightly less risky portfolios than you know even people want for not only compliance reasons for them sticking with it, but also you know kind of the, the main thing being the relationship. What What is kind of the average, by the way, is there an average from your years of doing this, you know, percent decline that that's, they spit out? I have a guess, but is, is there kind of a median or average ballpark that you think you could tease out from, from all these surveys? Yeah. I mean, I'll give you that answer, but I want to comment one thing because you just said maybe it's appropriate to lean a little bit more conservative. And uh, that's what I think the research would say, because I've read studies that say that People make cost themselves twice as much money by making mistakes in downturns as they do in upturns. And so if you can get the risk budget right and then just let the market give you, you know, the returns, you can satisfy your goals. So that was a good comment. But in terms of your question about an average, I would first of all, it's all over the place. It's we get some amazing answers. We get like zero percent and we get forty percent on the tails. But most of the people are around 15 to 20% decline yeah, and you know, what that guess. translates to their portfolio. So, so you're, you're talking 60, you know, anywhere from 50 to 70% type of equity exposure or high-risk exposure. Interesting. You know, there, there, there was a good analogy. Corey Hofstein, who we just had on the podcast from Newfound, was tweeting about, and it was about the U.S. Air Force designing cockpits in the, I think, 1920s and 30s. And they, you know, took averages of a couple hundred pilots and then built the cockpit, but then found that the cockpit didn't work because, you know, and it ended up obviously that none of the pilots were 
completely average on all the measures, right? You know, some were five, you know, five, five, some were six, four, yada, yada. And same thing. I think that's a great analogy for financial planning where you could kind of come up with this ideal portfolio, but it gets so much more nuanced with, with individuals and everything else. Absolutely. So that kind of takes us through kind of how you originally work with these clients. And, and I imagine you guys have also, you know, going way back to the robo conversation, you know, as an advisor and a modern advisor, start to implement a lot of the features of what a lot of these robos do. I mean, I know a lot of RIAs, for example, have been doing tax loss harvesting since the 90s, and they do asset location and automated rebalancing. So that's kind of table stakes at this point. Is that something you've kind of noticed too, is like, look, you know, as an advisor, we adopt all these things already. Um, Any general thoughts there before we start to pivot to a little more planning area? Yeah, no, it's a good question. You know, we've been doing it for a long time. You know, we've been We've been an RIA and doing this since 1991, and Greg Sullivan and Jim Bruett met in their Ernst and Ernst and Ernst and Winnie days, big CPAs. So taxes always kind of run through our blood. And if people are worried about paying a fee to an advisor, you gotta you gotta show that you can make it up, and then add some, and then throw a heck of a lot of financial planning on there as well, and then the connection, like we talked about. And there is. Yeah. I mean, if you can implement asset location appropriately, you can, you know, studies show about 15 to 25 basis points a year, you can add in value, just making sure, you know, those appropriate asset classes and appropriate strategies are in the IRAs or retirement accounts versus the brokerage accounts. If you, you know, don't have any retirement accounts, you sold a business and it's practically all taxable money, then yeah, getting tax efficient assets for your exposure, be it low turnover funds, be it indexes. There's definitely all those things you need to do. You need to make sure people are in low cost vehicles. I, and I think the Vanguard study is probably like the, the simplest way for advisors. If you go down the list of, they talk about it, it's like a 3% alpha that advisors add. I think number one was behavioral coaching. You know, you mentioned a couple asset allocation and in tax, tax aware investing, all that good stuff. So, right, all that good stuff. But the thing is, when you talk to most people, the portfolio in general is is just one. I don't want to say minor portion of the whole picture, but it it is only portion. So when you start to think about you know risks and a, a client's whole holistic financial view. Where do you even want to begin? When you, when, so when you're thinking about financial planning and how you organize it with, with someone, so what's the beginning process? You know, what, how, how, do, how do y'all <laughs> get the, the whole thing started? Is, is, it, is it allocation first or do you kind of sit down and then talk about everything else? How's it work? Hey, Meb, this is Barbara. Hey, you're still here. So, I thought you were um, maybe taking a little nap <laughs> back there. I was just so, I mean. She's looking at me across the table being like, shut up. <laughs> yeah, no, not really. It's, it's, it's how all our meetings go. I'm just letting you know. But no, anyway, I think um, the first thing we do for clients and probably the primary thing we do for them is we help them organize their financial lives. What does organize your financial life really mean? Well, we help them answer really three primary questions. And, and those questions are who, what, and how much. And so the who question is, first thing is, you know, who are your professional team of advisors, right? You know, most people come to us and they're successful. They have assets. They have fairly sizable balance sheet. And they usually have a team of advisors. And 
Generally, that includes, you know, their investment advisor, you know, who they could be firing or whatever. Um, their accountant, their attorney, and oftentimes there's an insurance agent in there. So identifying who those players are first. And then the second part of that question of who is ferreting out for um, our clients, who are the key team members in their family, right? So, you know, if I'm not able to make decisions Who's going to step in and make those decisions for me, important financial decisions? So who's your financial power of attorney, your medical power of attorney, your children's guardian? Who's going to execute your wills? Maybe some trustees, you know, who are your trustees if you're not the primary trustee on your trust? So that even goes further, right? And so we're looking at a client, but we also, if it's a client maybe around, you know, our age, then you're starting to ask the question, well, who are the key players for your parents? Because at some point, someone's going to have to be stepping in and assisting them. So you want to know who the key players are for their parents. And, you know, in my case, I have a son who just turned 26. And so who's the key player for him? He's an adult. He's gathering assets. And does he have a medical power of attorney and things like that? So it's sort of taking someone, your life doesn't just end with you. Everybody that's impacted by you and around you. So we start by identifying the who's in your life. You know, and then we move on to what, and and the what really is, what do you own, what and what do you control, and what do you owe? So at that point, you start building the balance sheet, and you start gathering in all the information on their balance sheet. And uh, most people are pretty good about that. They, you know, um, Jeff had mentioned we meet a lot of clients that have accumulated a lot of assets, and a lot of times it's in a lot of different locations. And so organizing all of that and saying, okay, we're going to actually take in all the accounts that you have at all the different brokerage houses that you have, and maybe they had several jobs, and so they have old pension plans and 401Ks that are still at the old employer's location, and so gathering those assets. Meb, I, I got to say, I often tell people that we're like therapists or we're like priests. You know, we've seen it all. And, you know, so we've seen 30, 40 different accounts spread out all over the world. It's amazing what you see. It also sounds like a little bit of like an offensive coordinator. So not only are you like getting together all the various professional relationships you mentioned, but also just a massive organization of everything that goes into this person's holistic life. I mean, I'm, I, I started to get anxiety listening to this because I know how much of a mess my own, my own personal yeah, was. I was like, oh my God, I don't even want to think about this. It's <laughs> like the prospects of putting this all together is just a nightmare. Okay, keep going. Yeah. So the other thing that occurs is when you start questioning people about their past employment and things like that, you're going to uncover assets. And for example, I think, you know, we have found old pension plans, you know, so five jobs ago, you know, you know, I think I might have a pension at that place. So we get on the horn and we figure out what are are the benefits, you know, this person doesn't even remember that they have. And let's get that in the record. You know, maybe there's unused 529 plan, you know, that still have some value in it. And that's just sitting there and you kind of forget about that. You know, life insurance, life insurance is also sometimes accumulates cash value and that's an asset and it should show up on the balance sheet. So you know, helping people walk through what are their assets is really important. And then, you know, obviously uh, what they owe is really important. Um, but once we get this, all this information in, and it can be 
like you said, a lot of people get a lot of anxiety and sometimes they don't even start the process. But I think once you get started, it really helps and you start unwinding this stuff. You really start to feel better about it. And so we organize all this stuff. And then we, what we do is, for most clients, we create a virtual vault. And in this virtual vault, we'll put all the important documents, any, you know, sort of backup materials that we need so that, you know, circling back to who are the important players, you know, in your life, if, if something happens to you, do they have access to the important materials that they need to be able to function and, and step into your shoes? And so creating that bridge and helping people, I feel much better now that I know that, you know, it's all in one place and so-and-so can call you and they can get in and we can get those assets and get those documents and, and be able to do those things that they need to do. Yeah, I mean, we see it especially from our older clients, but e- even our younger clients, there's usually one person in the relationship that does all the financial you know, tasks and the other person in the relationship just hates it, never wants to talk about it. And especially as you get older, that's dangerous. When you're not organized, you don't have kind of a quote, a death file, as morbid as that sounds, because you don't want to leave that person who's kind of never been in in the game with just a disorganized group of decisions to make. There's a couple good things in there. I mean, just the, this probably isn't, you know, talked about enough, but just the organizational aspect of putting together someone's financial life, to me, that's worth a lot. You know, and, and just having the comfort level of, okay, at least at least I know someone who knows what they're doing is looking after all of these various assets and debts and everything else. I mean, we, t- we love the website unclaimed.org. You know, we talk about it on here where people can go look for lost property that the states have. And you, you mentioned it, the same sort of thing with pension funds. If you, find, if you find some lost money for someone, that's like, you have that client for life too. Because <laughs> there's nothing people like more than, than finding lost assets. So just the organizational aspect, I mean, I'm sure it's a, ch- a challenging uphill first couple weeks or months with, with the clients to get that done. But it has to be... For so many people, I'm sure you've seen it, just a, a huge sigh of relief once once that's kind of put together. It is. And and once we've built that and they can see their balance sheet and they can see the organization, we can move into the next part, which is sometimes a little touchy and it's a harder thing sometimes. It's, it's a little more challenging. And, and that is answering how much, right? And, and that question basically is, how much do you spend? And honestly, I mean, I've been in the business a long time and I've clients have come in and, and a lot of them do Excel spreadsheets. But the reality is uh, most people don't have a spending plan. Some people keep records of what they spend. But by far, most people have no idea what they spend. You know, we, have, we deal with successful people. They make enough money and they do what they want, basically. And they kind of look at us like, but we really need to drill into this to understand, you know, where their money is going and how they're using their resources. Because when we start doing forecasting, this is going to be critical to talking about the long term and, and sort of modeling this out for them. So we do a lot of digging into this and, and a lot of, I would call it counseling. Sometimes it's a couple counseling, but, you know, we, we sort of back into numbers and the sort of test it out on clients. 
But what happens is when you don't know what, what you're spending, you, you fall into one of two camps. The first one is you tend to run in a deficit. And, you know, you might have credit card debt and you don't tend to pay it off on a monthly basis. And so it will just gradually accumulate. And so as we know that that's probably a very um, expensive way to run your household. And then the other camp is probably what we see more often is um, people tend to keep too much cash. Right, And so if you were operating a business and you wanted to operate it very efficiently, you would know what your operating costs were and you would keep enough in your operating account to cover your operating expenses on a monthly basis and you would run it that way. You would not have a lot in that account because you, you know, it doesn't earn anything. And so that's kind of how we approach it. So what we start doing is once we sort of land on what you're spending, then we can start looking at how are they utilizing the cash and we create sort of an operating account for clients. A lot of people tend to use what I call the envelope method. And the envelope method is I'm going to put aside a little money in the savings account for this vacation. And then I'm thinking about, you know, like a second or third home, so I'm going to save it over here. And so what happens is you have a bunch of different accounts and the purpose is whatever they are for, but it's not necessarily very run very efficiently and they might have different returns or no return. And so what we try to do is pull this all together and say, okay, let's talk about what your goals are and what the time horizon is on that. And so the operating accounts, the operating account, and then the next level is we're going to set up an emergency fund or, you know, sort of the set aside money. And, you know, that might be three to six months of living expenses or you're accumulating to this dollar amount because it's for a down payment, et cetera. You know, and then we try to earn some, you know, we use a high yield savings account or something like that. And then what we've then decided or we've been able to um, basically solve for is the rest of the cash. And we're saying this is really not working for you, let's get this invested in your portfolio. Let's get put it back into your investment account and have it working for you because this is all working capital, but it's not working very efficiently and very well for you. So let's get this back into the pot and really start using it for your long term. And so it's, um, it's a great way and it's actually, um, when we go through this process with clients, by the time we've figured out who's important in their lives, basically what they own, and we get to the how much question, usually we know them really well. And so at that point, we're able to sort of start building then their long-term forecasts. And, you know, going back to what Jeff was talking about, then we can start sort of building in then risk and we now start having the um, investment conversations. And all the questions that come with that. You know, a couple, a couple of years ago, I had a client come in and they said that they always have a ton of cash. And we're talking four or $500,000 of cash because it's an emotional crutch for them. And you don't want to always change these emotional feelings. You just want to work with them, right? So there we weren't able to get those invested, but we were able to you know, shift the assets to some high yield savings accounts. And we did convince them to pay down some of the mortgage, which at that time was over 4% versus the nothing that were, they were getting uh, at their bank account. So it's, as Barbara said, it's just making sure everything is, is efficient at all times. And, you know, I think that's an important point. I think a lot of investors we see are really bad at optimizing, like you said, that sort of cash and debt sort of just equation. And almost most investors that have money sitting at brokerage accounts or savings accounts, they're literally earning zero. 
very, very simple techniques to get that up to earning 1% a year. Right there, that justifies the value for an advisor if you're not already doing it. But it's funny, listeners, a good kind of exercise will be to go through what Barbara just outlined, you know, and ask yourself, do you have outlined and a process for that who, you know, the, the who providers in your life, the what as far as your assets and, and balance sheet and, and you know, how much I, I guarantee you 99% of the people listening to this have no idea how much they're spending. And I'm guessing the correct answer that they would estimate was going to be lower, <laughs> lower than what they actually spend. I know that would be true for my case. Maybe you could talk about it. And if, if there's a little more you want to add there, great. But maybe you could talk a little bit about too, an area that I think particularly financial advisors are great at that the particularly mostly the automated solutions and a lot of those approaches don't really address at all. And that's kind of the human capital side where, you know, you also take into account maybe it's social security or retirement benefits or, um, you know, what kind of job they're in or just in thinking about in general, also risks that may not be incorporated into a traditional, like a robo or something like such as health, job, property, et cetera. Y'all want to, y'all want to run with that one? Sure. Sure. So um, you're right. I think, Analyzing risk is really important, and it's the the typical risk that we think about, you know, from a financial planning perspective, you think about health risk or risk of death or risk of loss of a job or risk of property. You know, if, if one of those things is suddenly out of the equation, what's the impact to the, everyone else? What's the impact to, to the family or to, the, to your financial forecast? And so running those risks is really important. Most people... Can't, you can't really analyze risk until you really have a good foundation on you know what you own and what you owe and what it costs you to run your household. And then when you get to that place, you can kind of start then modeling, okay, you know, life insurance, for example, it's um, necessary evil. Do I need it or don't I need it? You know, um, if I lose my job, do I have disability insurance? And so looking for those types of insurance and making sure that you have the right coverage for the right time frame is really important. Um, yeah, and, and that, you know, I think a lot of people think, you know, Barbara, tell me if you're wrong. They have the whole bunch of insurance, and then they think all of a sudden it drops to zero. Well, along that path, you go from needing a lot to less and less and less. We find people overpaying for insurance all the time just because they, they think in, I need a lot, and then I need nothing. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's one of those assets that get on your balance sheet and you sort of just roll with it. And then you kind of like, well, this is what I do and this is what it costs. And you don't think about it anymore. And so taking a fresh approach to, you know, is it relevant for where I am in my life? Is it a future need that I'm trying to ensure? And, and what's the purpose of this? And I mean, every asset on your balance sheet should have a purpose, right? It's either for pleasure, for, you know, lifestyle, for helping me enjoy my life, or it's an asset to provide for retirement, or, or it's something that's going to take care of my family if I can't work. And so it has to have a purpose. And if it doesn't have a purpose, it's just something that's sitting there because you bought it 100 years ago. I mean, that, that doesn't have purpose, so you need to be maybe thinking about repurposing that particular asset. One area where, which is a conversation we have often with clients, and I know that probably a lot of your listeners are younger, but you know, something to think about is long-term care, whether you're, you're going to sort of go into that with your parents or you know, if you're in your 50s. Most clients, what we advise is when you get into your mid-50s, you start thinking about long-term care. You know, and I don't want to be sexist about this, but I have found that a majority of my male clients 
feel as though that is not something that they necessarily want to waste their money on. And then the majority of my female clients feel like it's a really strong need. They really want to buy long-term care coverage of some sort. And the reality is it's somewhere in between. There's a lot of different products out there and they do a lot of different things. But in order to assess whether that's a risk you want to take in internally because you think you have enough assets or if it's something you think you need to insure, you really need a good balance sheet. And you also need to have a conversation if you're married with your spouse and talk about, you know, if if one of us becomes ill, are you going to step in and help me? You know, are you going to unlock the checkbook and bring some help in here? Or would a long-term care policy help facilitate that whole, you know, exercise of getting help and getting the care that we need. And it certainly fits into the portfolio, you know, just doing an analysis for a client who wants four years of kind of shared care. Uh, If they end up using it, uh, you know, about a year and a half or so down the road, uh, we were were calculating the IRR, and it ended up being a pretty good IRR, especially if you use it two, three years or so, and then you compare it against market-type returns that may or may, may not be, you know, average, you know, it's a whole other conversation for the next 15, 20 years or so. And it ends up being a diversification play as well. Is there any sort of generalizations when people come to you as far as insurance that you say, well, they're woefully underrepresented in one, or they have way too much of this other that was sold to them? Any broad generalizations that you can kind of talk about? Well, I think generally, when most clients come to us, they usually have sufficient life insurance. So you think about the people coming to us, um, they're generally pretty successful and they've accumulated quite a few assets. And so uh, life insurance, because life insurance is a small premium, especially if you're buying term insurance and you're fairly healthy, so that's not a big deal. So a lot of people are willing to buy it and they realize at some point they're just going to drop it. But Long-term care is a, an insurance that a lot of people don't have. And one area that people tend to underinsure is the area of umbrella liability coverage, right? And so on your, you know, most people have auto and homeowners coverage, but you want to protect your assets above and beyond that amount. So if someone comes on your property and trips and falls and they realize that you have a net worth that's fairly sizable, they're going to sue you for as much as they possibly can get. And so that umbrella policy basically covers you above and beyond the liability limits of your auto and homeowners. And so you're really trying to ensure your net worth. And so that's an area which I find clients tend to be underinsured. Especially as you get up, you know, eight, 10, $12 million of assets, the, the people lucky enough to have that, you find that if they are with certain property and casualty companies, it's very easy to get one, three, even $5 million umbrella policies, and they're very cheap. But once you get over $5 million, some companies don't even offer them. So that's when you got to you know, change companies altogether to get the coverage that, that you need. You got to go to the, you know, the Chubbs of the world, the Fireman's Farm, and they end up outsourcing it to Lloyd's or, or something of that nature. So it's just you know, property and casualty, just like life. You know, as advisors, we're not we're not agents, but we got to keep the you know, our clients reviewing this the whole time or else it's just going to lay dormant. It's funny. My brother and I were just fishing and we were talking about, we ha- we have some river land in Colorado and there was a, a local neighbor that had emailed us maybe a year ago about being able to every once in a while kind of cross over under our property and, and go fishing or sit by the river. And of course, being good neighbors, we said, of course, 
<laughs> and then we were looking up the property on Google Maps, and you know, my my brother had gone fishing with his kids down the Colorado, so he's on a raft, hanging out with his kids, and he passes by and looks over, and there's an RV parked on our land. And so he's telling me this story, and we look it up on Google Maps, and sure enough, even Google Maps has the RV, so I don't know how quick they update Google Maps, but so it's probably been there a while. So we basically have a squatter on our land, and it just made me think as we were thinking about that, I was like, man, I don't, even, I guarantee we don't have any insurance about, you know, we got a couple, a couple people out there, who knows, hunting or firing guns and drowned or set fire, I guarantee we don't have any insurance for that. Anyway, it's a, what, what, so what other, kind of when people come to you, what are some other planning ideas that, that are often overlooked? Like what, what, what do most people whiff on in general as well, in addition to kind of insurance mistakes? Barbara, why don't you talk about the, you know, the titling beneficiary designations? People whiff on that all the time. And oh, they do. Yeah. Hit on a few. Yeah. So uh, a lot of our clients, as you can imagine, we work, we live in the DC area. So most of them are attorneys, not all of them, but you know, we have a fair share and attorneys are very aware of being sued. And so one way to handle that, especially in the state of Virginia is by titling. And so if we have assets that we can title tenants by the entirety, it's called T by E. Basically it's a way to protect assets. So if, you know, my husband goes out and does something and he's sued for it, if my most of my assets are T by E, they can't come after those assets because it's owned 100% jointly by both of us, so they can't come after those assets. So titling and making sure that's a reflection of your risk, you know, in conjunction with your um, insurance is really important. The other thing is, is beneficiary designation and and matching your state documents to, um, you know, what's been drafted. And so an area people whiff on a lot is they'll go out and get fantastic documents drafted for their estates and they're moving things into revocable trusts and those trusts will tell, you know, they're basically replacing the whole will. But unfortunately, they never take the time to implement the revocable trust. So they don't move all their assets into their revocable trust. So the basically, this document is useless because there's no assets owned by this revocable trust. And so making sure that the estate you know, documents match titling and ownership is really critical. And then the last thing is beneficiaries. Following through, especially um, for people... When you change jobs, you know, you'll, like I was talking about earlier, people have old 401ks and, you know, your mom might be the beneficiary of that and you've so moved on and you're married with kids or whatever, you know, that is not an appropriate beneficiary. So making sure beneficiary designations match where you are currently on your, in, in your life and the estate documents and where you want your monies to flow is critical. So all of those pieces follow through, you know, to the um, plan. And that's an interesting one because I actually didn't know that where, so if you had an E-Trade or Fidelity account or whatever, and you listed, say, your current wife as your beneficiary, and then you get divorced and you set up a new will and say, man, I really hate that woman. I want to make sure she gets nothing, yada, yada. But the, to my knowledge, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the beneficiary listed it on that Fidelity account overrules the will. So even if you said, I'm leaving this all to my children, she would still get the Fidelity account. Is that is that correct? That is, yeah. So that's exactly right. So, you know, will only comes into play after assets don't know where they go. So anything goes by first, it looks at titling. So if it's tenants by uh, entirety or joint tenants with right of survivorship, it passes outside of the will and goes directly to the survivor. And then retirement accounts or anything with the 
beneficiary designation doesn't even go into the will. It goes directly to, you know, so Fidelity will look at who who's the beneficiary on this account, and that's who it will go to. Same with life and insurance. And so, you know, your will at that point only directs anything that didn't have a beneficiary or a title tied to it with a survivor to it. So, yeah. I'm laughing because there's definitely some ex-girlfriends I've had in my younger years that I helped them set up investment accounts and they listed me as their beneficiary. And I, <laughs> I don't think I can reach out to them at this point and be like, by the way, you need to make sure that you're not leaving me this million dollars. It'd be awkward at some point. There's no way. I, I won't last as long as they will. I, my, my actuary tables will be far shorter. Okay. That's really helpful. And I, I think that's useful. Yeah. We could give you a, you know, a few other just kind of quick hitters, you know, cause there are some quick hitters. We see all the time people gifting with cash and, you know, people gift, you know, to their temple or tithing for church or some other charity that they, they really like that. So they're giving fairly significant assets. And we say, how, you know, how, how are you gifting each year? And they're saying with cash. And just the easiest thing in the world is to stop gifting in cash and gift with appreciated stock. Because if you have you know, $25,000 in shares with a $20,000 gain, you know, gift that to the charity. The charity will sell it with no tax consequences. And that just avoids for you to having to pay those long-term gains whenever you sell the stock. And if you like the stock, just use the cash that you didn't gift the charity to buy back the stock. And now you've raised your basis. Yeah, that's a big one. That's a very practical tip. Let's pause for a moment to hear again from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Roofstock, the leading online marketplace for buying and selling leased single-family rental homes. I actually interviewed Roofstock's founders, Gary and Gregor, back in episode 63, and I was genuinely impressed with how these guys are radically simplifying rental real estate investing. The process used to be incredibly time-intensive. First, you had to identify a market, look at tons of homes, then do some due diligence, make some offers, negotiate the price, and finally buy. And then you had to find a property manager to handle leasing and operations for you. What a nightmare. I've always been gun shy about rental real estate investing due to these various operational headaches that can come with it. But Roofstock has changed all that. Every one of these properties comes leased up and pre-certified by the Roofstock team. They even connect you with vetted property managers who handle all of the day-to-day headaches for you. They browse properties all over the country, including locally here in Los Angeles and even my hometown in Winston-Salem. And learn more about how to generate real estate income with peace of mind, visit roofstock.com forward slash meb. Again, that's roofstock.com forward slash meb. And now back to the show. Any more practical tips? Because if not, we'll go even further down the rabbit hole with a little more sophisticated ideas. So now that we've kind of covered some of the basics, is there anything where you guys get a little deeper or maybe that's a little more nuanced that you think are helpful concepts, ideas that can be used by people? Sure. I think one of the really valuable things we do is, you know, when we do the forecast, um, we're literally forecasting the rest of your life. So we're doing tax and cash flow and asset forecasting to age 100 or 95 or, you know, if you're really objectionable, you'll say 80. But anyway, so we're doing this long-term forecast and what we're seeing are uh, basically tax bracket trends. And, you know, most people have trends depending on what what we're um, building into those um, forecasts. But you have the, the high tax bracket trend where you're working and you're earning a lot of money. So that's the high 
high earning years, but also the high tax years. And then, then they trend down. And if someone retires early before like age 70 or something like that, you have this sort of beautiful window of low taxes potentially. And there's a lot of planning work that can go into um, those lower tax years. And then you have the post 70 years where you have the higher brackets. And so in that time is a different. So it's completely, sometimes there's a lot of strategies you can implement in each bucket or wh- wherever you are in life. So I think Jeff is going to talk a little bit about the um, tax saving strategy on maximizing deferrals. Yeah. I mean, your working years, you have the highest tax bracket or whatever. You just want to be driving home as much pre-tax contributions as you can. And one thing that we see all the time, especially if you know, you're a sole proprietor, or you're, you're not a W-2, you're, you're a K-1, you're working for yourself, you're a consultant or whatever, people generally think that the SEP IRA is the only vehicle where you can contribute money to your retirement. And in pretty much every single instance, you don't want to do a SEP. You want to do an individual 401k because it allows you to put in a heck of a lot more money. Now, there is, it is a wash. If you're making a good amount of money, call it $400,000 and you're under 50, then you know, you're going to be able to put away $53,000 in the SEP and you're going to be able to put $53,000 in an individual 401k. So that's a wash. But that's the only time it's a wash. If you are making that amount of money and you're over 60, you can put away 59000 in an individual 401k versus a 53 because 401ks have this catch-up rule where if you're over 50, you can contribute $6,000 more. So that you know, certainly helps. And of, of course, if you want to contribute a heck of a lot more, over 200000 that you'd set up a defined benefit plan for yourself. But in terms of the SEP versus I-401k, where it really helps is when you don't make 400000 you make 100000 for example. So we have a lot of clients where they're working and then afterwards they serve on boards or they're doing their own little consulting. You're making $100,000. If you do a SEP IRA, you can put away eighteen dollars or $19,000 pre-tax. But if you do an individual 401k, you could put away $43,000. So that's, that's a big difference. Also, you know, around here, I don't know if it's the same out there, but there's a lot of professionals that live in D.C. and surrounding areas that send their kids to private school. So when you have a bunch of kids, two, three, four, five kids that are going to private school from kindergarten to high school or through high school, no matter how much you make, that is a severe drag on your retirement ability to save for retirement. So you really need to play catch up at that point. And we, you know, we see a lot of small businesses, be it, be it lobbyist groups, be it attorneys groups, et cetera, that think that the 401k and the profit sharing option is the only way to go. And what we've found is that a lot of them can set up uh, what's called cash balance plans, and the leaders of the firm can put away, you know, over 200000 some dollars. And cash balance plans are much more favorable than defined benefit plans with respect to keeping them funded all the time. So that's, those are kind of two ways to maximize the deferral. You also, I mean, during this period of time, we encourage clients, if they're charitably inclined, to maximize their charitable giving. And you can do that fairly easily by setting up this great little vehicle called the Donor Advised Fund. It works like a private foundation, but it's less expensive. 
and you put appreciated stock in there and you can front and load it. With a donor advice fund, you don't have to turn around and immediately give it to charity. You get the charitable deduction when you put it in and then you can dole it out over your lifetime. So while I'm you know, making a lot of money, I can front end load my charitable gifts and get maximize my deductions, but then dole it out then in my retirement years. So it's another great strategy for maximizing deductions. Another thing that we do, I think it's really important is when you're looking at your balance sheet and we were talking about repurposing assets, sometimes clients will have assets that, you know, for example, a rental property. And when you're earning a lot of income, you might have a rental property that's creating, you know, it, may, it might be negative cash flow, but you don't get to utilize the negative cash flow because uh, you earn too much money. And so it's just sort of locked. See, these losses that have occurred over several years are sort of locked down on your tax return, but you don't get to use them. And so looking at an asset like that, we'll have a conversation with the client about potentially selling that asset. So if you you know, sell this rental property that hasn't done very well for yourself, you know, done so well. If you sell it, basically you're unlocking these passive losses and it directly offsets income. And so it's nice to unload an asset that necessarily isn't performing the way you hoped and get the tax bang at the same time. You know, so that's a that's a great opportunity. You know, so but what if that asset and that property were a good performer? Then we would probably look at again, looking at managing taxes, looking at moving into the next phase and saying, Why don't you hold this property until you're in your next phase? So say for example you're gonna stop working and stop bringing in the income, we expect your bracket to start falling when that occurs and at that point that would be a great time to sell that asset. And so during this period, this next phase, which we call pre-70 and a half phase, is an opportunity to um, basically unload assets that, um, you know, that we want to sell it again. But um, more importantly, looking at retirement distributions and, you know, when you turn 70 and a half, you are required by IRS tables to take out a certain amount out of all your retirement plans if you're not actively working and, and contributing to that plan. And it's, a, it's an actuarial table. It's a calculation. And prior to that, you don't have to take money out. But if you're over 59 and a half and you're in a low bracket, it oftentimes makes sense to take some money out of your retirement plans. And if you don't need the money, you convert it into a Roth, you know, and Roth IRAs, they're completely tax-free and you're never required to take money out for the rest of your life. So this is an opportunity to um, utilize some IRA distributions and conversions to Roth. And to get further nuanced, it's a balancing act because when you're in a low tax bracket, we see some clients with major you know, net worth, but their tax bracket is 15% or below. And when you sell stocks or, or funds or investments at a gain and you stay in the 15% tax bracket, you don't have to pay any federal capital gain on that. So I think you know, each and every year we have clients selling gains and not paying any taxes. So you got to balance that with the Roth conversion idea, et cetera. And then, then you're essentially prepared when your bracket jumps back up at 70 and a half. Yeah. Some other deferrals that we take during this time, you know, clients always have the decision after you retire, if you're over age 62, is when do I want to start drawing down my social security? And so for a lot of people who have accumulated assets outside of retirement plans, deferring social security until age 70 is usually a a fairly easy decision because post 
your normal retirement age, every year you wait past that point. So for most clients that, you know, who are at retirement age, it would be 66 this year for most people. Every year you wait beyond that, you earn 8%. Your benefit goes up by 8% per year. And so if you wait till age 70, again, you've created, you've deferred income to a later in life and you've kept your tax bracket low and you've increased your Social Security benefit for you. And if you're married, then for your spouse, because whoever, um, you know, is the dies and the other person can step into the other person's shoes. So you always collect the highest Social Security benefits. So you're maximizing Social Security benefits for a couple that way. So another strategy. Yeah, and probably the last one kind of in this early retirement bucket before 70 and a half is if you're under 65. So you're on the Obamacare exchanges, you're getting insurance because Medicare hasn't kicked in yet. If your tax bracket is or your income is under a certain threshold and it, and it changes per state, you can get a massive deduction, a that massive credit for paying for health care. So making sure that your investments or other things don't push you over that $65,000 or whatever the amount for your state is so you can get that credit is huge. And, you know, when you transit, so it sort of transitions us into talking about later in life. When we're looking at healthcare, for most of our older clients, healthcare, you know, when you're younger, you never get the healthcare deduction. You know, you're on your itemized deductions is 10% of your adjusted gross income in order to take $1 of deduction. So it's, it, most people don't usually utilize that. But what we find is for clients who are older and they're getting assistance. If they're in a nursing home or they're having people come in to help them and they have substantial health care needs and expenses, oftentimes a lot of those expenses are deductible and you actually get to utilize them on your itemized deduction. So that's a really important thing that I think a lot of people forget about, especially usually when you're at that stage, it's somebody else that's helping you prepare your taxes and sort of managing your expenses. And so they might not realize that the nursing home costs are actually deductible and you should be taking your deduction for that. And the other thing what we generally guide people in when they're in that stage of life is you don't want to be gifting assets away. And you probably don't want to be you know, tax loss harvesting or, or you know, selling assets because if you're getting towards the end of your life, the benefits of a step-up in basis generally outweigh prepaying income taxes for somebody in that case. So you want to hold on to your money and allow it to pass through the estate so that the basis will then step up to the fair market value. And if you have one spouse that's particularly sick and one isn't, transferring those highly appreciated assets to the sixth spouse sounds kind of morbid, but truth is, and so that they can get a step up in basis is probably another good tax planning strategy. There's two global thoughts as I, as I listen to kind of y'all talk about this. The first is I clearly need a financial planner. Second is, you know, you listen to a lot of these robo-advisors and there's one in particular that's like, we're going to use artificial intelligence to totally replace a financial advisor. And listening to this podcast, it's maybe at some point, you know, may, maybe 30 years from now, but it's so complicated and so nuanced and so particular, it seems seems a long way away. All right, so a couple more ideas before we start to wind down. So say, say you know, you do want to give it away. So I sell Cambria for 
a billion dollars, want to give away this money or, you know, anyone else kind of later in life? Like what's, what's some strategies there? What's some general thoughts or specific or both? First thought is, you know, Meb, you're young. And so you hit it big and, and you want to make a sizable charitable donation. But the reality is you're still probably, hopefully going to live a very, very long time. And so what can you afford to give away? One approach is to basically a charitable remainder trust allows you to put in highly appreciated assets. So you basically would put it into the trust before you have a, a deal on the table. Let's put it that way. And then when it hits, you know, you get a big charitable deduction and you, and you put it into the trust. At that point, basically, you get an income back for life. So you get a big charitable deduction and then you get an income back. That's the annuity part. And so you get an income back for life. And then whatever is left at the end of your lifetime goes to charity. So it's a great strategy for um, allowing you to give to charity and not give it all away and create an opportunity to um, get some income back from that, those assets during your lifetime. Barbara mentioned the donor-advised funds before, you know, I guess 10 or 15 years ago for people who were giving big-time money away. They thought you know, private foundations was pretty much the only way to go. But the problem with private foundations is just huge startup costs, you know, huge legal fees. You must spend 5% annually or spend 5%. Uh, you got to file these detailed and public you know, tax returns on grants and investment fees and trustee fees. So everything's kind of out there. There's excise tax, you know, one to two percent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So these donor advisor funds are are fantastic. You get to keep most of the control, but with uh, less rules, less costs, it's very easy to put money in and then dole it out electronically to charities and administratively getting, you know, having all the records sent to you. So private foundations are really the, you want to go there if you want to create a multi-generational platform and get the family really involved. Because, you know, for example, if you have a charitable, charitable values that you really want to pass on to your kids, your grandkids, their kids, et cetera, that's when the private foundations is probably you know, the way to go. But other than that, donor-advised funds is just perfect. And a lot of the big custodians have those now. I mean, I'm thinking specifically, I believe, Fidelity and Schwab. And I just had a memory. I think I emailed you a couple years ago where I said, I really want to get rid of this private company stock and I can't find a way to do it. And the challenge for a lot of those custodians needed ability to, to sell it at some point. And if it's completely illiquid, you're kind of up shit's creek. So, but yeah, those are pretty awesome. And I, I think Fidelity may be the biggest. It's Fidelity or Schwab, but but there's a lot of those that that will house them. Talk to me about company benefits. You know, that's something that there's probably less and less of those more and more. But is that an area you guys deal with at all, or have any thoughts uh, in general? Yeah, I mean, uh, you're right. You know, back in the '90s, there was benefits up the wazoo, but you know, we still see. You know, people come through the door and, and current clients with complicated be- benefits, benefits that are far reaching from, from deferred comp plans to options to, you know, RSUs to ESPP shares, you know, et cetera. We see people not taking advantage of all of them. For example, you know, the ESPP plans are the easiest ways to get a automatic raise because usually those programs are set up that you get a 15% or so discount to buying your stock. And you, you, know, you put in to buying these stocks 
through your paycheck. So you can't have cash flow issues to kind of do this deal. You have to have enough cash in your bank account to handle the disruption of cash flow. But then you end up, for example, buying the shares at the very end of the quarter or the beginning, the first day of the quarter, and then you can turn around and immediately sell it. So it's just locking in a 15% automatic gain. Now, yeah, you got to pay taxable income on that, but still, you know, hey, 15% gain automatically without the risk is a 15% gain without risk. So we see people not doing that, and we always tell them to do that. Hey, you know, another uh, thing I see people, they put on their balance sheet, but they have no idea like what to do with it are the um, stock options or restricted shares. You know, so you work for XYZ company and they, they have this great package and part of that package is we're going to give you, you know, restricted shares. They're going to invest each year, you know, a, a quarter, a year for four years. And then we're going to give you some stock options or they might call them um, performance share units and, and we'll give you some SARS, you know, and they have all these acronyms and they're very complicated and people are like, yeah, great, thanks. And then it just sits on the balance sheet and they never know what to do with them. And so oftentimes when we start looking at these plans, they've accumulated a great deal of wealth, you know, in a particular company. So I'm working for XYZ company and they're paying my salary and they represent 10 to 15% of my net worth because I have all of these restricted shares that have vested. I have all these vested stock options, which I don't know what to do with, you know, and then I'm going to get more each and every year. So what's the strategy around this? And a critical piece of, if, um, of what we do is trying to figure out a strategy. First thing is, you know, going back to risk. Well, how much company risk am I taking on by having working for this company and owning all the stock with this company? And so we start having that conversation and saying, okay, well, let's put together a strategy that doesn't kill you in income taxes, that keeps some upside for you because you love this company and you figure you're going to keep working for them, you're going to keep getting new shares and more options, you know, and so let's put together a strategy over time that helps you sort of divest some of the risk, but also keeps the upside there for you, but has something in place. So if it starts to tick down, you know, you can start exercising these things in a reasonable fashion using your restricted shares that have vested to buy options and things like that. So that's it can be fairly complicated, but it's a great way to then start moving wealth around and getting them diversified. And I find that it's a really valuable service that we provide for clients because, honestly, they don't know what to do with these plans. And the, probably the last kind of benefit that we see either people doing too much of or too little of or not at all is deferred comp plans. You know, we see people sometimes loading it up and putting a heck of a lot of their money in deferred comp plans. And oh, by the way, they're going to continue to work because they're workaholics until they're 70 and a half and their tax bracket is never going to go down. So they end up just putting all this money into a non-qualified plan that could go down. And that's just risk that they don't necessarily need. So if you think you're going to always be working, you don't want to load it up. But on the other side, you do want a plan to loaded up if it's a safe company, if you're going to be retiring before 70 and a half and just what we talked about, you know, your bracket goes down. And if you can choose to space out the distribution of that deferred comp instead of just all, all being at, a, at one time, then you can, you know, you're putting in at the highest tax bracket and you're taking it out 
at the 15 you know, or whatever percent tax bracket or a little higher, and you're getting the difference there in, in savings. You know, it's funny listening to this. Just, you know, we, we talk so much about investment management on the podcast, and that's obviously a really important piece to get at least right or decent, but there's so many easy ways to invest kind of correctly in my mind. But there's such a massive amount of kind of alpha or, you know, personal finance and estate planning side that people neglect. I'm going to ask if just a couple more quick questions and we'll start to wind down. Otherwise, we'll have you guys here for a, a four hour. This feels like a therapy session because I'm thinking about all the things that I don't do. Uh, Rimsburg, I'm sure you are too. I'm sure your house is even worse order than mine. <laughs> but, uh, okay, a couple more just kind of quick questions and we'll start to wind down in... I almost feel like having you guys back on in six months and saying, "Look, let's go through a let's go through a template for Meb, and you can just do a, a test case template for for all the listeners. That's right, for live. All, the, all the mistakes the CIO of Cambry is making in his own life. Um, <laughs> so you guys have been you know meeting with clients for years, and I'm sure this is very market dependent. But, but what's kind of the What's the biggest concerns um, you're seeing or hearing from clients and potential clients that come in today? I think it's a little bit of Pavlov's dog, Neb. I think everybody is worrying about the next tech bust or the next financial crisis and and stocks going down not just 10 or 20 percent, but when's the next big one coming, right? When's the next 30 or 40 or 50 percent decline? And, you know, it's a reasonable question. It's, it's what they're worrying, worrying about, and we have to, to deal with it. Uh, because as you know, it's not, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary. I think probably if history rhymes, then we could have another 30, 40, 50% decline if we're going to mean revert to valuations that you know, we typically go down to. And I think that's obviously a big question in our minds, you know, as when we're sitting around the investment policy committee table, you know, are we going to fully mean revert or is this going to be kind of a drawn out low return type of environment? And there is no right answer. There's right answers for specific clients. So, I mean, you look at someone who's making money and who's saving 40 or 50% decline is actually a pretty good thing. You know, you look from 2000 to 2017 or so, what's the market up about a high 4% or so. But if you were actually using money to save into that, your IRR would be close to eight or 9%, which is near the 10% you know, average uh, return. So you don't necessarily need to be too scared if you're a saver. But you know, as we talked about before with the whole sequence of return risk, you can't bet as a soon-to-be retiree or retiree that it's going to be different. You can't bet that we're only going to have 10 or 20% declines and its valuations are going to you know, work themselves out that way. You need to, I guess, play it safe. You need to reduce uh, your risk probably at this part of the cycle. So it's essentially what we are doing is counseling. It depends on who, who asks the question, uh, but they're, we're counseling people through this big issue of this low return environment and how is it going to work itself out? Funny you mentioned about young people because you can tell them, say, the best possible thing that could happen to you is the stock market <laughs> to go down 70% and you can dollar cost average your way the next decade and you're going to be setting up for double digit returns and then you know watch them try to go through with it and be compliant. 
is a different story, but it's, you know, the, the classic phrase, it's, it's really, when things go on sale, everyone runs out of the store, you know, applied to investing. It's, it's an area where it's easy to counsel people what to do, particularly when they're younger. It's hard, hard to uh, actually get on board with it. Right. You don't want to lose a young, a young client to, you know, them being investors for the long term. You know, you can't force them into a higher allocation and to buy in. You want to make sure you're safe enough, even if they're young. So if that happens, they just don't trust stocks for the next 30 years, because that would be even worse than being more conservative you know, than you need to be. I think when you layer on the financial planning to what Jeff was talking about, um, a lot of our clients will look at us and say, you know what, I know that you say that it's going to recover but my time horizon is not as long as maybe yours. And so am I going to live long enough to ever see this money come back? And most people are just afraid that they're just, their lifestyle has just gone out, you know, down the toilet with the stock market. And so it's really talking about creating those safety assets. And, and when we do the, the whole portfolio risk and setting aside assets to cover near-term cash needs. And that's critical because when it does go down and they look at their net worth and they look at their investable assets and they've lost 20%, you know, you can say you're still fine because we we still can cover what you're going to need over the next eight years because we have it and, and safe assets. And so, and by that time, the, the portfolio and your market, the market should recover and you're going to be back on track. In 2008 and nine you know, the worst was when we took clients on in 2007 and they're like, oh, we're so excited. We're going to retire now, you know, on the first day, you know, and then they went into 08 and 09 and they were drawing down on their portfolios. But we had set them up in advance to sort of take a lot of the, you know, and they didn't like it. I, quite honestly, they're like, oh, this is really conservative. You know, I'm used to having most of my money in the stock market. And we're like, no, we're going to start setting up this, you know, sort of funnel and getting some safety assets in there. And because you know, it's not going to go up forever. Okay. And honestly, those people were our best clients in 08 and 09 because they knew that they didn't have to worry about where their money was going to come from because it was already set aside and they could wait it out. The worst clients were ones that we hadn't had the conversation in a really long time. And maybe they were, they had inched up into a more aggressive strategy and it wasn't appropriate based on the way they feel about, you know, that getting back to that question Jeff asked, how much can you lose and still stay in that strategy? You know, so we hadn't done that in a while. And those were our worst clients through the 08 and 09 stock market decline. And I'll add one last thing, Meb, and I'll put my financial planning hat on here. One of the things that they're worried about the most is their kids. I think financial literacy is not being taught in high schools or colleges and their kids are getting out in the workforce and they're scared as hell that their kids are going to make bad decisions and dig themselves into a hole over you know, the first five to 10 years of their working years. And that is a serious fear. And they often ask us for counseling the kids to the point where we got the request so much, and we needed to obviously do it you know, efficiently, that about six years ago or so, we set up a class basically for our clients' kids, and it's, it's held twice a year. And I, I believe we have it on YouTube as well, and it's taught by our associates. So it's kind of peer-to-peer -peer learning. And that's when we're going through everything that they need to know. I mean, 
credit cards. I mean, how many kids get in credit card issues? You know, what the benefits like, you know, like we were talking about budgeting, saving, you know, how to invest, how to save for a mortgage. You get all these type of things that really kids just don't know about. And uh, I think parents are really worried about that for their family. That's great to hear. You know, we talk about that a lot on the podcast, the education gap, you know, not just for young people, but older people in general, and, the, and how much of a shame it's not taught in high school or only in college if you elect to. And it creates just a massive headache. And, and for most advisors, the retention rate, by the way, when assets pass from parents or grandparents to, to the next generation or divorce is so low, largely because they don't address that. So that's smart for you guys to do. If you, uh, if you send me an email with a link, we'll add it to the show notes to people to check out because I think that's a, that's a, a big need. So we're going to wind down. I, I usually have a final question. There's about 30 others that I didn't even get to, but we'll have to have you guys back on with some more specifics. And it's funny because we asked this question of all the guests in 2017, we had a different one last year. And I'm going to ask you, and then I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell a story to give you a second to think about it. Uh, and it's to both of you. And it's, what is your most memorable investment personally? It could be good. It could be bad. It could be publicly traded. It could be something else. But while you guys think about it, Jeff, does the Rock Bottom Brewery still exist in Arlington, Virginia? I believe so, in Boston, right? Okay, Boston, wherever it was. Because it, does it still have $2 happy hour? Yeah, I mean, that was our you know Thursday night place. Um, Thursday night. I was going to say Tuesday night. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. But you know what, Meb? You know, I'm 40 years old and I'm so lame, you know, I, I wouldn't even know. <laughs> well, the, but the reason, the reason I ask is because, you know, I've detailed some of my most memorable investments on the, on the podcast and most of them are awful. And this is another one to stay true to this name. So Rock Bottom Brewery. So when, when Jeff and I both lived in Northern Virginia, I was in DC, Gaithersburg, working. That was our go-to because it's $2 beers on Thursday night. I mean, come on, just out of college. What a good deal. You don't find that anymore. I was just in Iceland where beers were $15 each, by the way. Um, <laughs> anyway, so $2 beers. Broke college student. You'll learn about learn about budgeting like that in the SBSB class. Anyway, Rock Bottom Brewery in the 90s, so I would have been in high school and then into college, was one of the first stocks I ever bought. And the ticker was Brew. B-R-E-W. And it didn't go anywhere forever. And if any, if it went anywhere, it went down. I think it eventually went private in the late 90s. And I was trying to Google it just now while we were leading up to this question. And I think it's now a conglomerate of other ones. But it was a horrible investment. And it was one of the first times where, you know, growing up, you read Peter Lynch, invest in what you know. And there's so many good products that uh, you know, I said, hey, this is an awesome brewery. It was the beginning of the craft beer trend. I mean, you know, there was only a couple breweries doing it. The the Sierra Nevadas of the world, the Boston Sam Adams. And I said, this is going to be a massive trend. And living in Colorado, I got to see it. And then in D.C. And, and it was a great lesson of huge difference between a company and a business and a stock. And so nowadays, you may have a, another scenario where uh, you have a lot of these great, huge tech companies that are very expensive, and Amazon being an obvious example, you know, where you always have to separate the, the two, the investment from the stock. So, okay, turn the tables to you guys, uh, your most memorable investment or trade. All right. So I remembered one while you were talking. It's very important when people 
or listening to CNBC or reading something, you know, you get all these ideas and you want to do your own homework before you, you kind of go with one of these ideas. When out of school, I was told by a guy named Meb Faber to invest in something called Gene Labs. Ticker was Gene, wasn't it? G-E-N-E? G-E-N-E. And I didn't do my homework on it because I really trusted this guy, Meb. <laughs> I and probably didn't either. A, the company uh, you know, was in this, was, had a lupus drug, and it was in uh, stage three. And we were just waiting for this thing to get approval for the pop. Uh, because we didn't know that markets back then were discounting mechanisms and probably people already thought uh, and it was going to get approved and thus it was in the price. I mean, I remember being at Arthur Anderson in my cubicle when I found out that news came out that it was not approved and I saw my thousands of dollars go to practically zero. And I remember, I think it was IMing or emailing this guy named Meb and I was like, what <laughs> happened? And... <laughs> So awesome. um, I had pushed that to my subconscious, um, but now I did too. Broke, I just forgot about it. Why'd you and now I got to go to therapy. Why'd you invest so much? <laughs> I only had hundreds of dollars invested in that. <laughs> I only had like three shares. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that company no longer exists like most of the biotech companies from that uh, vintage. Um, but a lot of good lessons in there, listeners. Never listen to your neighbor, no matter mm -hmm. how smart and handsome they are. Uh, do your own homework. And yeah, but I, that the last uh, point I think is a really good one is Ken Fisher talks a lot about this is, is, you know, is what you believe or is your thesis already discounted, you know, or is it something that everyone knows and is expecting? Or is it something that you're the only person that has this alternate opinion? And in, in many cases, people's belief is, is already, if, if we're talking about it, or if it's in the newspaper, particularly CNBC, it's already known about it. All right, Barbara, you got one? Yeah, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be an investment nerd. I'm going to go a little bit out of the box because I'm a holistic person. And so back in the day when I was trying to figure out how to get healthy again, I invested. This was an investment because at the time, relative to my uh, income, I bought a really fancy mountain bike. And this was clearly an investment on my part because it was nicer than my car. So this, this mountain bike started something for me, which has been going on for like 30 years now of keeping me healthy and just, you know, upgrading my mountain bikes and just added to my whole sort of um, well-being, but also... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a great asset on my balance sheet. And so it's something that I really enjoy and I'm really happy that I did it. You know, it's funny. I talk a lot about I no longer have a mountain bike because going back to the part where I don't have any health insurance uh, that would probably cover <laughs> all of my extreme falls. But one of my favorite trips of all time was a mountain bike trip from Telluride to Moab and some of those huts. And I love y'all got a bunch of great tra trails on the East Coast kind of around where you are, too. We do. But I, I um, yeah, that's a great I've done that ride, too. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, the hut to hut. Oh, yep. the San Juan yeah, hut system. Yep, you know, yeah, absolutely. That first day when you go up this like massive hill in Telluride, I remember just thinking, oh my God, what did I possibly <laughs> get myself into? And it could, like just collapsed at the hut. And like every day we'd collapse at like 3 p.m. and just be exhausted. But it was a really special trip. I'd love to do it again someday. But the last day was like, 
I, I tend to have fairly stable emotions. I had like the biggest meltdown in my life because I crashed like 30 times. <laughs> my my two buddies I was with, they're like, yeah, let's take the rim trail. And we met some, and I was like, I'm going directly to the hotel and showering and getting a massage and a steak dinner. And they're like, no, come on. It's the last day. We met some guy, some local on the trail who, by the way, is wearing mountain bike armor. You know how people go head to toe with like armor. And I said, hey, you know, these two trails, can you kind of like rate? You know, this is from zero to 10. You know, what's this trail and this one? And he's like, looks at the one I'm going out. And he's like, that's probably like a two. And I go, what's that one? He goes, it's an 11. And I go, okay, guys, I'm going <laughs> to go home. But the best part about that was is it started raining and lightning while I was in my hotel room. And my poor friends got stuck in like a little hut for like three hours while I was uh, freshly bathed and on my way to, to happy hour and dinner. So lesson learned. Anyway, guys, look, this was a blast. What's the best place for, you're probably going to get a bunch of phone calls, a bunch of inquiries here, because if any of the listeners are like me, they know they need a lot of help. What's the best place to find you guys? You know, probably just, you know, our our website is the best. Uh, So www.sbsblc.com. And you know we have you know webinars on there. We got our bios, uh, contact information, et cetera, and emails. Uh, you, you know, got emails. Uh, Same. We got emails. Emails right there, and uh, yeah, you can find us on on YouTube for some of those things. And yeah, I'll make sure to get you that that young adults presentation by our associate. Right. We'll we'll post it all to the show notes. Jeff, Barbara, thanks for coming on today. It's been a blast. Thanks, man. Thanks, it was thanks. a lot of fun. It's been great. Thank you so much. All right, listeners, that was a marathon therapy session. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. It generated so many more questions I need to think about. Um, If you have any feedback, questions from the mailbag, send us. If you like this kind of series, The Practitioner, I think it's a a cool way to get us all thinking about um, personal financial situations. Uh, You can find the show notes, everything else, mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. We'll post all the stuff we talked about here today and much more on there. And remember, you can always subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Castro, all the good apps. And if you're enjoying it, leave us a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.